Hello, Melissa. Hello, Jean. So happy that you have you give us this opportunity for the interview. No, I'm my pleasure. So delighted. Yes. Uh, so we have a few questions, and um, I will go one by one. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the question one is about yourself. Mm -hmm. In your essay, uh, Whiteness, you mm -hmm. said, as a teenager, you were only dimly aware of your originality mm -hmm. because of the whiteness you were privileged to enjoy, yes. courtesy to your relatively pale skin yes. and um, hidden family history. So this pale skin obviously comes from your father, yes. who claimed to be a son of a Ukraine farmer or white Russian, or middle-class Czech refugee, yes. depending on who asked the question at the time. Yes. As you said in another essay, which I read, and quite interesting, not quite white mm. in the head. Mm. Only until you were 14 did your mother confess that you were Aboriginal. Mm. Um, by then, the government stopped removing Aboriginal babies in Queensland. So at 20, you learned that your father, Wally Lucas, had been born Vladimir Lukashenko. Can you tell us about your own journey of discovering your identity and the place where you grew up? Yes. Well, I grew up in uh, Brisbane, which is Australia's third largest city. And I'm one of seven children. I have six older brothers. And it was because I was the youngest that I was unaware of my Aboriginality. My oldest brother is clearly Aboriginal looking, but he left the family young. And so um, while my other brothers knew that we were of Aboriginal, I was too young to have known Jonathan. And uh, I just grew up thinking that some people had pale white skin and other people had olive skin and curly brown hair. And that was an era in Queensland where race was never, ever talked about except when um, except when people wanted to be racist. It was considered uh, impolite in society to talk about anyone's race at all. So, uh, And it's actually not accurate to say that Aboriginal children stopped being removed in the 1970s. I know I wrote that and it's on my website, but it's... It, the form of child removal has changed. Aboriginal children are still being removed from Aboriginal families that are capable of caring for them and want to care for them. And so the policy of assimilation into white Australia is still going on today, uh, very much so, but in a disguised form. Uh, but, yeah, I grew up um, with my family. We grew most of our own food. Uh on a small acreage uh, in the on the outskirts of the city, and I went to school with uh, ordinary Australian kids. Public education pub in both primary and secondary school. Then I left school when I was sixteen, and I did a few blue collar jobs. And then people kept telling me I should go to university, so I applied and I got in. I had no idea what university would do, but absolutely changed my life and uh, it's the best decision I ever made. That was in the era when university education was free in Australia. So I studied public policy and economics. Uh, I went to university thinking I wanted to become a small businesswoman and I came out the other end interested in politics and 
philosophy, sociology and literature. Was it rare in those days that the Aboriginal children go to university? I'm 53 and I'm in my cohort. I was among the first cohort of um, Aboriginal people beginning to go to university as a, an ordinary thing. It wasn't as common as it is today, but, um, yeah, there was. I was at university with uh, probably 30 other Aboriginal students at the university at the time, and that was really important, formative years for me to... Um, to meet Aboriginal people and just to uh, learn from them, and some of those some of those relationships have persisted today, and I've been adopted into one of those uh, Aboriginal families of one of my peers at the um, university. Can you tell us were you shocked when you were told that you were actually Aboriginal? Yeah, I was because I had until that point I had this idea of us as basically Australian but with this Russian heritage. And um but as soon as mum said it, I went, Oh, that's why our skin is olive, that's why we've all got brown eyes except for one brother. That's that's why we look different. And I always had a sense of being different growing up, very much so. That could have come from either side of the family. But at school, um the blonde haired, blue eyed girls were definitely the Queen Bees and uh I was a strange child and so far from being a queen bee that it's not funny. And I, I never know whether that's that sense of being a, an outsider at school was from uh, mum's Aboriginality or from dad being Russian or a mix of the two or something else altogether. Did that uh, discovery impact on your sense of identity? It took a while. At that, at that age I was practising karate. I was a karateka for 10 years. And um, Queensland champion, met several times, and uh, a black belt when I was 18, I think it was. And so at 14, my focus was very much on karate, and that was um, a kind of substitute identity. I wasn't interested in race, uh, so I was I was kind of neutral about it. But um, I do remember talking to um, one of the few other Aboriginal kids at my high school, Rory O'Connor, not long after mum told me though, and we discussed it and worked out that we were, you know, the same um, degree of Aboriginal, of Aboriginal, and I don't think I knew until then that Rory was Aboriginal either. And uh, we've also got a, like a, a long uh, term, lifelong relationship because our families were neighbours and our brothers are very close. And it's fun, yeah, funny how things. Our brothers are extremely close like brothers um, and I think that's that's not a coincidence either. I've noticed in um, several families how um, Aboriginal kids will gravitate, you know, fair-skinned Aboriginal kids will gravitate to other Aboriginal kids, whether they know they're Aboriginal or not, um, just because of the, the simpatico. It's kind of intuitively. Yeah, intuitive and, mm. and small things, you know, body language and, and I guess like calls to like. Can we say that the discovery like puts you closer to Aboriginal values or, you know, lifestyle or, you know, or the world? The... It sharpened my interest. Mm. I, I think I grew up with Aboriginal values, even though the, the fact of Aboriginality was hidden, the values I grew up with 
very strongly egalitarian, um, very strongly uh, connected to nature and being taught little things like you never take all of the berries off one plant, you always leave some to regenerate and, uh, you know, you share what you've got uh, unstintingly, things like that. So the, the values persisted even though the, the fact of, of mm. my Aboriginality mm. wasn't known to me. Mm. Yeah. So that reflects the place where you grew up. Is yes. it very much Aboriginal community? Not really. The only other Aboriginal family mm. um, close by was the one that I said no. about my, they're like brothers, my yep. brother. No, mostly um, all mixed, uh, you know, Community. white Australian, some small percentage Asian, European immigrant, different, quite a few immigrants, some Italian families, but basically just an ordinary Australian setting. So it's quite diverse. It was not diverse. exclusively Aboriginal community. Oh, no. no, definitely not. No. That's uh, really interesting because of the book, the the story you describe. Yeah. You know, very um, yes. Well, see, my identity yeah. journey yeah. now. Yeah. I, I still live in a part of Brisbane where um, it's predominantly white. Some Asian, some you know, mixed South African. Um, you know. Mediterranean, all different ethnicities, but it's not majority Aboriginal. But my identity has deepened and strengthened very much in 30 years since I found out. So uh, I know where all the Aboriginal families near me are Mm. and they know where I am and the network of Aboriginal people across Brisbane. It's like a virtual community. All about your father's side mm. has so much impact on your upbringing or on your let's say, system of values. I'm sure the answer is yes, because I grew up with my father. And so, yes, the influence is definitely there. Mm. But interestingly, at the same time, my father, as I said to you earlier, was he was um, racially abused as a, a young man called a stupid wop and all this mm. kind of stuff. All his life did working-class jobs. He cut sugarcane. He worked in the gold mine in Tennant Creek. He he was a labourer, but a very smart man, but very physically very strong. And he he associated with people, mostly ordinary white Australians and his Russian family, and he assimilated into Australian mainstream. He had two selves. He had his Russian self and he had his dinky die Aussie self so when he spoke English he spoke very mainstream English but of course he spoke Russian as well so yeah he was an interesting man an interesting but see he worked in the bush a lot and he had some exposure to bush culture and a little bit to Aboriginal culture as well so it's kind of all mixed up. Mm. Do you feel like you know your father very well? Oh that's an interesting question Mm -hmm. I think I'm still learning to understand him, even though he died in 2010. Mm. I wrote a poem for his funeral and I said um, something like um, Australian name, Australian home, but Russian blood and Russian bone. Did he often talk about himself or his past or his own family back in Russia? Well, his parents came to Mm. Brisbane. Mm. Uh, He never spoke about his father ever Mm. and I only met his father once in my life. Mm. I knew his mother and... um, she lives in that part of the family lives in Melbourne. He didn't talk much about the Russian stuff, 
it was just who he was. He talked, he talked about different funny stories from life generally and just mm. everyday conversation. But he had a lot of pain. He he spent part of his childhood in an orphanage. His mother left um, the father mm. because he was so violent, and she had to put my father and his brother in an orphanage for a year mm. to escape. Mm. And then she went back and got them. I'm sure he was terribly brutalised in mm. the orphanage mm. as well as at home. So, yeah, he had a lot to forget. Is that that's reflected in your writing? Yes. Mm. And uh, about the, uh, your writing, mm. and um, uh, in the online introduction says Melissa Lukashenko is a claimed Aboriginal writer of a guru and European heritage. And in one of the interviews you gave, you said, that uh, when you first started writing, there was a still a glaring hole in Australian literature mm. with a very few Aboriginal fiction writers published. And of course, so that is not the case anymore. Mm. Uh, and you also said that being Aboriginal is about the culture and family links, not just about the biology, which we touched on. Yes. And uh, however, Aboriginal means something different to others, to mm. not to outsiders. Yes. Usually something much more restricted and restrictive, yes. as you noted. How do you define Aboriginal writing and Aboriginal Australian writer? Well, an Aboriginal Australian writer is someone of Aboriginal heritage uh, who, who thinks of themselves as an Aboriginal person and has a relationship with an Aboriginal community that accepts them as Aboriginal. As far as what Aboriginal writing is, I think I would I would take the broad definition and say it's any writing by an Aboriginal author. Uh, why do you see that, um, you know, to outsiders, Aboriginal often is something restricted, you know, restrictive? Because of um, two centuries of colonisation and racism. I mean, Australia's only just at the very beginning of understanding that we had a complex and valuable civilization here and lived sustainably forever in a country that they've managed to almost ruin in 200 years mm. because um, Aboriginal people are not always seen as part of the Homo sapiens, you know, mm. the... Uh, was seen as some kind of uh, precursor. And, of course, overseas audiences um, don't have good information either. No. There's been a, an apartheid, a, a intellectual and often a physical apartheid in Australia until very, very recently. And so who we are is, is still a mystery to most of the world. Mm-hmm. That is also one of the reasons I want to really want to introduce you and to your book yes. to Chinese readers and exactly as you see outside the world yeah. do not have uh, in-depth understanding. Mm. And um, when you see Aboriginal writing would be, or Aboriginal writing has to be talking about Aboriginal culture, people, story, well, if and, I can, which is very distinctive from other Australian writers. I think Aboriginal writing will be distinctive whether the person is is addressing um, stereotypically Aboriginal topics or not because our view of the world, when we look out, we see through Aboriginal eyes and so we see things differently to, for example, a German writer or a Chinese writer or a British writer. Mm. Uh, and the same goes for photography. The Tasmanian Aboriginal photographer, Ricky Maynard, 
um, I think it was, who said that he can tell by looking at a photograph whether it was an Aboriginal photographer mm. or not. Mm. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm. Which you can relate. You, yeah. you sort of can tell the, from the writing usually, as well. Usually, yeah. Mm. Um, because there's, there's some dead giveaways, like uh, the use of we and us as opposed to I and me you know, the individualistic versus the mm. collective consciousness mm. um, and the, the situating the subject always in place, in country. There is no disembodied um, individual in Aboriginal writing. Mm. And being an Aboriginal writer, so you always write about Aboriginal Life. I have until now always mm. focused on an Aboriginal story, yes. Mm. Before Too Much a Lip, you published um, Mullumbimbi. Yes. Which was a big success. Yes. But afterwards, you feel like the success you described as a mainstream success. And you actually wanted to write a different story, a different book, mm. but different from uh, Mullumbimbi. You said a book that you want to write, um, Too Much a Lip, is. Um, a really hard-nosed book yes. and frightening to write about. Uh, and you, so you set out to, to write a book that you expect everyone will have a problem with. Yes. Um, including possibly a backlash from the Aboriginal community. So when Too Much Lip is published, it has been praised as a fearless, gritty, unflinching, tough, uh, but also warm and hilariously funny. So it won the highest literary award in Australia, the Miles Franklin Award for 2019. And in your own words, you received, you said you received everything from brave reviews to muted approval. Yes. And though you'd still be waiting uh, for someone to hit you over the head <laughs> on the moonless light. <laughs> so the uh, question is, what is it so frightening about you writing this book? It's hard to answer that question without spoilers, but I guess <laughs> I, uh, I talk about the Aboriginal community warts and all. Mm. I think a lot of the time my, my mainstream audience or my Australian audience and the critics think when I talk about it being a frightening book to write, I think that they believe I'm talking about me being rude about white Australia, but that doesn't frighten me in the slightest. I don't care. You know, we are still hunted like animals in this country, by men in four-wheel drives. Um, every weekend in Australia, there are Aboriginal people running for their lives, not in big numbers, but, you know, here and there, a few people will be chased by men who want to harm them and sometimes kill them. So I don't care if white people think I'm being rude about racism in Australia, endemic racism in Australia. That doesn't frighten me in the slightest to talk about that. The, um, the thing I was frightened of is not being skillful enough to write a book that does justice to Aboriginal life and which helps white people to demonise Aboriginal men because I don't want that to happen. Um, but I do want to talk about the Aboriginal community in all its facets, including the ugly facets. Why were you so surprised by reception of the book? It's like I'm uh, walking on air. I, it's changed 
it's it's a bit like when you first get published with your first novel. It's like, oh wow, I've got a book out there. No mm. one can ever take that away. Mm. I'm now officially a writer with a published book, mm. and uh, you know that gives you a massive boost to your confidence, mm. and it changes everything. And that's what the Miles Franklin did for me. Mm. Yeah. So do you feel like a Beast Award um, telling you that you succeeded in telling a regional story without? Uh, you know, having Aboriginal men being demonised, or it's a still unknown quantity. It's hard to know that, mm. and I've all, I've learned to never underestimate Australian racism. Basically, mm. I hope so. The writer is actually dead, and the reader will read the book that they want to read. Mm. Uh, and I always take that into account, which is why writing Aboriginal stories is so complex, mm. and why outsiders do it so very badly because outsiders don't understand how Australian racism towards Aboriginal people and Aboriginal history works, whereas we do. And mm. so we take great exacting care to second guess. It's like a game of chess with, with a non-Aboriginal reader to say, well, they're going to be thinking this at this point, so I need to come at it from that angle and very be very strategic about things mm. and at the same time be funny and write a good story. Winning the prize definitely is a wonderful thing. Oh, yeah, it is. It really is. Alexis Wright rang me the next day and said it took her a year to understand the meaning of winning the Miles Franklin, and she's so right. And I'm really glad she told me that because it underlined for me that it's something I need to grow into. And about the book, um, you said on several occasions that through this story you wanted to tell truth to power. Yes. And then the story you tell is about intergenerational trauma, family violence within the Aboriginal community. So it is a very confronting story. And in the, in the meantime, it is also a story of a defiance, hmm. and defiance that shapes the theme of the story and the characters. And one of the typical examples that I noted is when the family, the whole family, forced themselves through the lock of the gate yes. to the Granny Evers Island to yes. scatter Pop's ashes or to to take Pop down to the ancestors. Yes. And then um, Mr. Ken asked, why should we have to sneak onto our wrong land? Mm. So mm. that defines, it's also shown by you as the author mm. who, you know, do not shy away from the brutality of a truth. Yes. And you're describing violence and trauma in an unflinching manner. Mm. You tell the original story from within. So, as you just mentioned, so it's not to leave it to outsiders to speculate or formulate to suit to their own agenda. So perhaps you can touch a bit more on why it is so important to tell an Aboriginal story as an insider and what is the message do you want to convey to the mainstream Australian? Well, to take the second part of that first, um, I've never written a book um, until this book where a major Aboriginal character dies. My my single um, focus for the, my earlier books has been we are a living culture. We have not died. We have not become extinct. We exist in every part of Australia and even though we don't look or sound or think the way you you think Aboriginal people should, that doesn't mean that we aren't here and going about our Aboriginal lives. That's my, That has always been my main thrust. Since writing Mullumbimby, or about the time I wrote Mullumbimby, I became a little bit more sophisticated in what I was trying to achieve, and 
I decided that I want my Aboriginal characters to have four things. I want them to have beauty. I want them to have power. I want them to have humour. And I want them to have land. Because those are the ingredients of a good life. And lately I've just added love to that. So beauty, power, humour, land and love. Because all of those things are what we had before the white man came to this country. We had rich and satisfying lives. Uh, so that's what I that's what I want my readers to take away, to understand our humanity. Why is it so important to tell oh. Aboriginal stories and things like that? Um, because every story is a political story and every story that a white writer writes about us has the capacity to do damage to us. White writers can't write Aboriginal stories. They can only write faux Aboriginal stories. They can only write what they believe an Aboriginal story is from a lifetime of racist conditioning in a country that has never bothered to understand us. I'm all for collaboration between Aboriginal writers and other writers, but what I say to outsider writers is, yes, include us in your story, but not as major characters. Only use Aboriginal characters as a minor voice in your piece because you will not get it right and you will do damage in the process of getting it wrong. The next question is about the story, and um, which is Aboriginal life in contemporary Australia. Hmm. Uh, the book you said is to portray the Australian underclass in rural New South Wales, mm. especially the Aboriginal underclass. Yes. What strikes me the most when reading the book is how close and contemporary these Aboriginal characters feel to writer to mm. readers, mm. while their life is very much regional and local with unique Aboriginal characteristics. The char- the characters of themselves are not placed in a remote. Uh, isolated or mythical environment. They live very much in the modern society of 2018, mm-hmm. just as everyone else does. Mm. So, uh, yet, beneath this reality of ordinariness, there is a sharp clash or incongruity yes. between the contemporary society they live in yes. and then the ancient uh, entitlement to their lands that they have continued fighting for. So does this sense of incongruity define or underpin the Aboriginal condition? And is it the theme of the book? I think it does underpin the Aboriginal condition. Um, It's one of the themes of the book. The American novelist Jane Smiley said something that has always stayed with me, which is that the premise of a novel is always that things are not what they seem. And with Aboriginal society, things are definitely not what they seem because we have, uh, culturally, there are hidden layers of knowledge and hidden layers of meaning and metaphor everywhere you look, all the time. That's intrinsic to Aboriginal culture. And to to come into your full adulthood as an Aboriginal person is to learn and understand a, a gradual uncovering of those layers of knowledge. Yeah. And as I was saying to you before, in this book, there are elements that only a Bundjalung Aboriginal person will get. There are layers that Aboriginal people will get. And then there are layers that 
Australians will get and then there are layers that a general audience will get. So when Ken, the older brother, refuses to tattoo his son Donnie with a hoop kind and says he's not ready for that yet, your Australian reader will think, oh, he's he's talking about the pain of the tattoo, but an Aboriginal reader will think there's more going on and a Bundjalung reader will understand what's going on. That's really interesting. So your book is really uh, depends on the reader yes. who reads it and so what level of a story they will get or what level of a meaning they will get. And that's a traditional Aboriginal practice. It's also mirrored in, in yeah. European writing yes. to an extent. For example, Aboriginal folk tales that Europeans have reproduced and, and you know understand to be Aboriginal stories for children. They think they are stories for children because that's the only level they've been exposed to. But those stories may have three or four or even seven levels of meaning that can be revealed. But the yeah. the mainstream Australian... May not get it. Well, they're not exposed to it. They're not mm. told it. They're not mm. taught the language of the story. Mm. They're only treated like children because that's how they deserve to be treated. Do you write this version of a modern Aboriginal life, which we just touch on, to counter the myth that Aboriginal people is a dying race? Yes. So yes. you want them to live in the modern world and say, you know, everyone can relate to them to the point of that they are there. Well, all Aboriginal mm. people live in the modern mm. world to some extent. Mm. Um, there, are, there are quite a few Aboriginal people who speak poor English or sometimes no English but they're very much in the minority. Most of us speak English as a first language. Most of us live in cities. Mm. We, we all use modern technology to some extent and we are still Aboriginal and we still practice our culture and, can, and keep Aboriginal values usually. And then come to the um, intergenerational violence and um, racial violence and historical genocide. All these are quite horrendous and... Uh, make the reading quite intense. Yeah. Uh, but they are also, um, in the meantime, uh, all very intertwined, interwoven. Blood, we'll have a blood, it is uh, the oldest law. Mm. Thus, the debt is paid. Mm. So the question is, has the debt been truly paid and can be paid? In Australia or in the book? In the book. Uh, yes, on a technicality. Yeah. And there I'm reflecting on... Um, uh, the Merchant of Venice. Yeah. How about being Australian? Can the debt be paid? Oh, it can be, um, but it will take time. A crime scene. All of Australia is a crime scene. And the white people are blundering around like people rushing into a crime scene and, and buggering everything up. So the detective work can't be undertaken. Uh, the treaty will be a good start uh, to bring the country together. But the the racism is a real obstacle because this persistent idea that Aboriginal people don't have a civilization and a, a very complex, developed understanding of the universe, not just of the country, but of the universe. You know, there's so much that isn't understood. Uh, it, it's it's difficult to convey how. Mm how big the gulf in understanding is. Mm. But, yeah, the uh, the debt can be paid and, and debts debts will hang around one way or another mm. until they are paid. It's just the way of the world. Because we're talking about, we're talking about intergenerational trauma and violence, 
Chinese and uh, in your book, and there is quite you know younger generation, mm. they are there, and the younger generation they are already traumatized by violence, yes, and, you know, and alcohol abuse. So you do you think the redemption is possible? Yeah, because not every not every Aboriginal family is like this. You know, mm. there's a lot of families where the, there isn't this degree of violence, mm. and uh, yeah, the book. The book is very much about redemption and about healing. Mm. You know, we have the tools in our families and in our communities mm. to do the work that needs to be done. Everything in Western psychology, much that is in Western science, much of Western knowledge and lots that lies outside of Western knowledge is in our communities. But because we are seen through a deficit model, it's like, oh, what, what could those people, those people are useless, those people are drunks, those people are lazy, those people have no capacity, you know. And so we get this incredibly um, harmful ideas about us that prevent us from healing our own lives, mm. you know. Mm. We, we want to run our own affairs and have the power to do that. Mm. And we we have the capacity to do it. We did it for 60,000 years mm. or 100,000 years, you know. Mm. But um, it's a long way mm. before we can get other Australians to understand that. Mm. I think mm. with the fires that have just happened, the catastrophic fires on the East Coast, mm. there's a, a glimmer of understanding that Aboriginal people manage this continent with fire. You know, when an Aboriginal fire burn happens, yeah. it happens very, very differently to a wildfire. Mm. And if you put your hand on in the ground when an Aboriginal fire burning has gone through, the ground is not hot. The ground That's remains cool. lukewarm mm. or cool. Mm. And so mm. we have these gifts, but, you, can, you know, it's like it says mm. in the Christian Bible, mm. don't throw... Don't throw your pearls before swine, mm. lest they trample them and then turn around and savage you. That's the end of that quote that people forget. You know, we have these gifts of knowledge and wisdom that you can't give to people who aren't ready to receive. About characters. At the end of the story, Carrie looked for faces in the rising smoke and didn't know who she was anymore. The family had always been proud of their Chinese blood and Carrie had long been assumed, had long assumed a bit of a white convict was floating, floating around somewhere in the family tree. But to descent from the very first land grabbers, the murdering pioneers, will this identity search be a continuous theme in Australian writing? Well, this is an interesting question because what happened in 1988? was Sister Sally Morgan over in Western Australia published her story, My Place, yes. which is a story of someone similar to myself who grew up not knowing that she was Aboriginal, coming to understand that she was Aboriginal and that journey. Ever since then, mainstream Australia tends to read every Aboriginal book through that lens. Now, the only identity confusion in this book is where Kerry learns that they're related to certain white people of the town mm. and the characters, um, there's a one family who are not the main family who discover an Aboriginal heritage. Apart from that, there is no identity confusion in this book. 
but outside readers come to Aboriginal text expecting to read the Sally Morgan story. And so that's very often what they will impose. I was told that, well, that some reader reflected upon Mullumbimby as a story of someone looking for her identity. It absolutely isn't. The main character in Mullumbimby, she knows she's Aboriginal, she speaks some of her language, she has no confusion whatsoever about being Bundjalung. But that's what outside readers expect and so that's what they will project onto the story. Identity will always be a central component of my writing and of a lot of Aboriginal writing um, because that's the legacy of the genocidal policies. Mm. However, it's important not to see an identity struggle where one actually doesn't exist. Mm. Kerry knows who she is. Mm. Ken knows who he is. Black Superman Mm. knows who he is. Mm. Pretty Mary knows who she mm. is. Um, Granny Avon definitely knew who she mm. was. Granddad Chinky Joe knew who he was. Mm. Pop struggles with identity, and that's not a coincidence that he's the one that's so violent. What about Donna? But even Donna mm. is doing it knowingly. You know, she made a choice. It's about the language of this um, book, mm. Black and the Black Fellow Humour. Mm. The book, as the critic Critics have commented is a greeting, but also hilariously funny, which I found I often laugh and cry. <laughs> That's good. Black human, the black fellow's humor dominated the tone of the story and make the reading engaging, but also quite intense because there is a sharp edge to your humor. Joke is used as a defensive mechanism, uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes, as Kerry says, the only safe way was to make a joke of it. Can you tell us why the use of a black and a black Fellows of humans are so important in this book. Well, it goes to the authenticity of the book and the portrayal of an Aboriginal family. Uh, I think probably other Australians think we sit around being miserable or, or drunk or whatever, but uh, there's a lot more laughter in Aboriginal lives than any other lives I've observed. You know, there's we've got a hundred thousand years of social observation to draw on and. Uh, People can be mercilessly funny sometimes. Is that the funny is a kind of a demonstration of a defiance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and particularly with poor Aboriginal people, you know, not all Aboriginal people are poor, but a lot of us are. And when you've got poor people, they have nothing to lose. And when you've got nothing to lose, you can be as cutting and funny as you like. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that from Chinese culture as well. You know, the, the mockery of... Yes. Um, of the, those that are on the bottom rung. Other question I really am interested in the title. Yes. Too much lip. Uh, the beginning of the story, uh, Auntie Tor Mary said about Kerry, mm. too much lip, this little Jean. And close to the end of the story, there is also a comment on Kerry, too much lip, her older problem, we back. Mm. And uh, the older she got, the harder it seemed to get to swallow her opinions. It's like her having too much lip is a thing as a problem or having causing trouble. Mm. Uh, can we see that uh, the title has a double meaning? One refers to Carrie, who brings up issues and secrets or hidden away in the past about being loud with her views and thoughts. The other refers to the author, you, who decides not to swallow her opinions and observations mm. yes. um, in your you know, um, portrayal of Aboriginal life. There's those two meanings and then there's a third meaning mm. which... Um, you know, I'm an Aboriginal author writing mostly to a non-Aboriginal audience. Australia is an adolescent country. 
Australia has not yet matured into a, a fully adult society, in my view. And it's the condition of the adolescent to be angry and petulant and to protest. Uh, and I knew that that title would resonate with mainstream Australia. It's a quote from a friend of mine who's an elder from Cape York. And uh, years and years ago, I was telling him about me being cheeky to some authority. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what it was. I can't remember. And he said, he, in an admiring way, he said, oh, too much lip this gin. And he was like a compliment. Yes, talk back. Don't, don't be quiet. Uh, last question. It's really to Chinese readers. And you know this book is going to be translated into Chinese and to introduce you and your writing. Yes, the, this book readers. is Hong Hao. Hong Hao. <laughs> what do you sort of expect <laughs> Chinese readers to get from this book? I, I just hope they understand that we are still here. Mm. We are modern and ancient at the same time, mm. which I think is probably true for a lot of Chinese people. You know, you have your modern life, but you have your roots that go far, far back in time. Mm. And those roots are always important mm. and always present in your modern life. Mm. Thank you so much, Melissa, for your precious time and the wonderful answers. It's really good. <laughs>